Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Has globalization gone too far? Is our economy too financialized with far too much income inequality and economic insecurity? Has all of this led to greater distrust in our institutions? The past few years have brought all kinds of surprises, none of them good. Today, we'll hear an argument that we need to be more local, more resilient, and keep business operations, investment, and wealth closer to where we live. Homecoming, the case for a post-global world with Rana Faruhar. I think the pendulum of the old way is tapped out, right? Cheap money is over. Cheap labor from China is largely over. Cheap energy from Russia is definitely over. So, you know, the pendulum is going to shift. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? We're going to discuss some big ideas, Richard, and raise the hood on the engine of our economy. And, you know, maybe that old gasoline engine needs to be replaced with a, <laughs> like a fancy few, a few electric motors like in your Tesla or, or maybe even a, a Mr. Fusion. Ooh, don't even know what that There's is. There's a film reference for you. <laughs> <laughs> Financial Times journalist and columnist Rana Faruhar returns to our show. She spoke with us about five years ago about her previous book called Makers and Takers, and she argued that only 15% of all the money in financial markets actually ends up in the real economy in the form of loans to help grow businesses. The rest, she said, was traded and shuffled around the financial system. Rana's latest book is Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. She joins us from her home and office in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we're still fixing it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, we keep doing this podcast and there's just new things. In your book, you argue that the way the economy has been organized for the last 50 years, at least, with a focus on globalization, letting goods and capital flow relatively freely, that's been the organizing principle that both parties in our country have supported. And now we're running into some problems. What's wrong with that model? Like all economic models, it works for a while. And then it doesn't. You can go back to 18th century mercantilism that gave way to laissez-faire, that gave way to Keynesianism, that gave way to neoliberalism, which is what I believe um, it has been sort of the governing principle of globalization for the last half century or so. And as you say, the, the idea is that goods, people, money should be able to travel wherever they want, and crucially, that they will land where it's most productive for them to do so. I think one of the problems is that that model always favored capital, it favored money over goods or people. And so you saw at a global level, 
more wealth being created than ever before, but within countries and particularly within the developed world, the US, Europe, even developed parts of Asia, you saw a kind of a hollowing out factory cities that have gone under, you know, pretty big swaths of the country that have not done well. And in fact, in-country inequality has actually grown in most places. And to me, that's why you have the really fractious politics of the moment, both on the far right and on the far left. People are uh, feeling, hey, this system isn't working for me. And also national interests seem to have been subsumed by global interests. And so there's a disconnection between the global economy that's kind of flying 35,000 feet above national political interests. And and I think that that's where we are now. You say, in fact, that, that populism is largely the result of a disconnect between the global economy, the system we now have, and politics. Yeah, I think if you look certainly at politics in the U.S., the rise of Donald Trump, but also the rise of Bernie Sanders in in England, Brexit, there's a sense that, wait a minute, you know, there wasn't a national story about the decisions we were making and who who they were going to affect. And let me give you an anecdote. I did an interview with Richard Trumpka, the former AFL-CIO director, before he passed away about a year and a half ago. And I was asking him about the decisions that were made in the 1990s around trade and and what was the discussion with policymakers um, in the Clinton administration about NAFTA, about the ascension of China into the WTO. And he remembers having a discussion with a policymaker who who told him what was going to happen. And he said, look, this is going to kill not just U.S., but Western labor in certain areas. And the policymaker said, well, that's true. We know that. But don't worry, eventually wages are going to even out. This sort of leveling out is going to happen globally. And he said, well, how long is that going to take? And the policymaker said, three to five generations. Wow. And right. (laughs) That's one of those, what? My head is spinning moments because, you know, that's that's (laughs) that's <laughs> generations of lives of the people certainly that I grew up with. I mean, my town in little rural Indiana, farm town, factory town went 76% Trump. And I totally get why I am not a Trump supporter, but I do understand the dynamics that have led people from both parties to say, well, I don't have any options left. I'm just looking for something different. And what's the response now in Washington to what happened in recent decades as a result of free trade and globalization? I think that the Biden administration, to their great credit, realizes that trade issues are class issues and that we need to start thinking about how we address those. Your book does a great job of walking us through some of the downsides of globalization. But before we move too far into that, let's just take a minute to acknowledge some of the upsides. If if you're a yeah. poor single mother today, you could walk into a Walmart, even with all the inflation we've had, you can still buy jeans for your children for under $10. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, it would have been 40 or $50 isn't that a factor we should include the the extraordinary reduction in costs and so many things that are necessary the benefits that that gives especially to poor people you're you're hitting at the heart of the biggest challenge to moving away from the neoliberal model you're absolutely right that one of the big bargains was 
cheap capital for cheap labor. So the U.S. sends investment to Asia, uh, low-cost Asian labor makes cheap goods, they go back to the U.S. Absolutely, that has driven down the price of consumer goods and services. Here's, here's though, two points that I would present. One, even before the latest bout of inflation that we've all been dealing with, the price of housing, uh, healthcare, education, all the things that make us middle class were rising at multiple times the core inflation rate. So it didn't really even matter that prices were getting lower because they won't bol- they weren't bolstering the fact that incomes were stagnant and all the stuff that you really need to feel comfortable was rising. So that's point number one. Point number two is I will cop to the fact this is much easier for me as a you know upper middle class person to make this argument, but cheap isn't cheap when you factor in um, is that cotton t-shirt being made by tiny hands in Xinjiang, you know, in a forced labor camp? How many uh, units of carbon did it take to tote it uh, across the world from the South China Seas to here? What were the environmental uh, standards that were involved in that? These things, interestingly, though, um, were actually changing even pre-COVID, pre-Ukraine. You say that supply chains were starting to regionalize, bringing some of the production in certain industries closer to where consumers are. And now with semiconductors especially, that argument has become even more urgent. I I never really understood why anyone in the world thought it was okay to have 92% of all high-end semiconductor chips made in Taiwan, which, you know, aside from Ukraine, is probably the most politically contentious place in the world at this moment. So to me, that's kind of about um, realism and resiliency, moving to resiliency and redundancy and away from this, like, you know, just-in-time model, which is great until something breaks. The problems we're facing right now aren't just related to globalization. You've coined the term the everything bubble to describe the the long run up in asset prices, stocks, bonds, and you know, notably housing. Almost anything you can invest in has gone up in value dramatically or had until quite recently. And now that everything bubble is popping. What created the everything bubble and why did it not continue? So globalization has been predicated on about three things, cheap money, cheap labor, and cheap energy. Cheap money came from the U.S. to the rest of the world, mainly in the form of rates being kept very low, um, financial regulations being loosened. It was a kind of an unleashing of global capital that happened during the Reagan-Thatcher era. And there were a lot of good things about it. You know, I mean, you were coming out in the 70s of a very constrained period in which arguably there was too much regulation. There, were t- there was too much dysfunctional union power. And so this unleashing of global capital was a good thing. Um, unfortunately, almost all of the global capital went um, outside the U.S., to you know, parts of Asia, um, you had multinational companies and the Chinese state becoming the single biggest beneficiaries of that system. By keeping rates low and then after the financial crisis and after COVID, central bankers pumping a ton of money into the economy. I mean, unprecedented amounts of leverage in order to kind of prop things up. 
that created a kind of a saccharine economy, this disconnection between Wall Street and Main Street where asset prices get really pumped up because that's what central bankers do. I mean, what can they do? They can just pump a lot of money into the economy and make the prices of stocks and homes and, and all kinds of assets go up, but they can't really change the story on the ground. They can't make a new factory or a new product. So you get this weird disconnect. And I think we all felt it during the last few years where, wait a minute, we've just had a global pandemic. We're in a war. Our politics aren't working. And yet like stock prices are higher than ever before. What's that about? That's the everything bubble. And it is now, as we know, bursting. We had two decades of cheap money, low interest rates, inexpensive mortgages. Should have been easy then for businesses to borrow and and to grow. But so much of that money was not spent on making stuff, but went instead to pumping up share prices and boosting assets. Is that right? That is right. And it's it's sort of a real witch's brew of, of little policy tweaks that led us to that point. You know, what happened in the US is as we began to drink this Kool-Aid of, look, as long as share prices are going up, everything's great. A lot of tweaks were made to tax policy, let's say. So for example, um, share buybacks, which is when a company goes out onto the open market and buys its own stock, that used to be illegal. It was considered market manipulation. It was then changed so that companies could do that. And then they could artificially bolster their own share price. And then they thought, well, wow, if we can jack up our share prices, maybe we should start paying more of our executives in shares. And then the Clinton administration tweaked the tax laws. And thanks to some of the lobbying from uh, Silicon Valley and said, yeah, you know, let's not only pay more in shares, but make that tax deductible, make it favorable. So now you've got um, a corporate America, a C-suite that's getting somewhere between about 30 to 80%, depending on the company, of their entire uh, salary packages in shares. And you wonder why companies want to do more share buybacks than, say, invest in a factory or worker training. They're being incentivized to do that. You know, Rana, the 18th century Scott, Adam Smith, has often been called the father of free market economics. His most famous and widely read book is The Wealth of Nations. You say that Anglo-American capitalism in recent years has morphed into something that Smith wouldn't even recognize. What do you mean? Well, if you think about the period that Smith was living in and working in and coming up with his economic theories in, um, it was a marketplace economy. I mean, you know, buyers and sellers largely knew each other. There were not far-flung global supply chains in which, you know, an airplane was being made with parts from 110 different countries and things were coming over on giant shipping containers and entire industrial uh, production lines were being outsourced. Um, so his theory of what made a fair market was buyers and sellers that understood what the transaction was in very literal terms, but had equal access to information about, you know, what a fair price should be and crucially had a shared moral framework. US, China, shared moral framework? Not so sure. Me and Amazon, equal access to data? Nope, you know, so there's a lot that's broken in terms of how the free market system is actually working, not only in the post-neoliberal era, but in the era of surveillance capitalism. We're How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Rana Faruhar, who is the author of the new book, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World.
let's bring this a little bit closer to home with an industry that we're all involved with, at least as consumers, and that's agriculture. What started out as a highly diversified, often pretty local industry became extremely concentrated and our supply chains became hyper-efficient, but also restricted to just a few channels. Why is that a bad thing, not just for farmers, but also for consumers? It's a system that was started in the wake of the Great Depression. That period, you had a large number of people moving from rural areas into cities. They needed a lot more food. And so the USDA and a number of federal agencies were essentially encouraged to support cheap food, support big, cheap cash crops, and support calories, essentially, to create as many calories for people as cheaply as possible. And we did a really good job at that. So we got there. Now, over the last several decades, this country and many others have had different needs. We're producing plenty of calories. We're just not producing the right ones. We spend a tremendous amount of time and money uh, incentivizing cash crop grain production, much of it to, to raise beef, which, you know, I like a good steak, but there's no getting around the fact that that's contributing to climate change agriculture, and particularly that kind of heavy industrialized agriculture where you're growing the majority of corn in the country, not to feed people, but to feed cows. It's, it's a dysfunctional system. It's, it's pretty tough to justify at a planetary scale, at a climate scale. At the same time, that system has, like a lot of um, economic policy shifts, it's supported a superstar economy because in order to have the scale to do cheap, you have to be big and then you get concentration in the agricultural industry. And one example of this that we all saw during COVID was the pandemic hits, suddenly we're all locked down, nobody's going to restaurants, everybody's stocking up on stuff in the supermarket, but you can't find certain things in the supermarket. Well, how could that possibly be? We have so much food in this country. Well, we also have about four companies running pretty much most of the agricultural supply chains. That's just-in-time efficiency, but it's not particularly resilient. Meanwhile, you've got all these local producers that said, well, we've got plenty of cattle here, we've got plenty of pork, but we can't sell to the school that's six miles away from us because we're locked into a system where we have to go through three financial commodities trading middlemen that are a thousand miles away. I'm, I'm with you on all that, but I want to push back on a main thing. We've been talking about problems with free markets, problems with neoliberalism. But when I look at the agriculture sector, I don't see free markets run amok. I see one of the most highly regulated sectors in the American economy, heavily subsidized. So if we're looking at a part of the economy that's gotten too concentrated, couldn't we argue that the government was the biggest force in making it concentrated? In agriculture in particular, you're right. Regulation has incentivized monopoly power. And so one of the things I've been very pleased about, actually, is that the Biden administration has started going after some of the big agricultural monopolies and monopolies in, in a number of areas, meatpacking, the, the big chicken producers. Um, but, you know, we would have to have a whole nother podcast on the USDA, the SNAPS program, that's the food stamps program, you know, and, and, and how and why we feed people the way we do in order to decode agriculture. Oh, please come back, Rana. We'll do that. 
<laughs> I will. And you, I'll, I'll bring my community produced agriculture box you, with me. Great. <laughs> you grew up in farming country in, in Indiana. And yeah. is this one reason why you feel pretty strongly about food? I do. I mean, I saw um, really through the lens of, you know, those 1980s farm bankruptcies. You know, you remember the farm aid concerts and John Mellencamp singing about rain on the scarecrow and all, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was my high school years. I have many friends, families went out of business and the people that survived, you know, there were two or three big owners um, in the entire north of the state by the time things were done. That concentration pushed a lot of people into factory work, but by the 90s, the factory work was being outsourced. So that's one of the reasons why areas like the one I grew up in, and certainly parts of the rest of the Rust Belt in the South, were so hollowed out by these policies. And it, it did make me really interested. Let's talk a little bit about innovation. It was getting easier to start up businesses, getting easier to after years of reductions and, and loss of interest in manufacturing, it's getting easier again to get into manufacturing. So we're a podcast about solutions. Talk to us about some of the solutions you saw that you're most excited about. Just I'll stay on agriculture for a minute and talk about something called vertical farming, which I think is amazing. As we know, climate change is is shifting growing seasons. So a lot of technologists are trying to figure out how could we kind of create a farm wherever you are, in your backyard, up your wall. And so I actually met at a, at a conference on water conservation. I met a, an entrepreneur um, who had come from a long um, line of farmers in the, in the Midwest. He and others have come up with ways of growing plants up walls or on ceilings using very, very hyper-focused kinds of light and water. It's, um, there's no chemicals involved, but it's really about creating a micro-growing climate in you know wherever you are. I could have one of these in my office right now and like pick some lettuce off the wall. In fact, the Google campus in California get all of its produce from these, these kinds of vertical farms. You can put them anywhere too. You know, you can send one to Abu Dhabi or Hong Kong. So in some ways, it's the ultimate in global local. That's one idea. The other one that I'm super excited about is additive manufacturing. So it used to be called 3D printing. Um, it was sort of for hobbyists, you know, ooh, look, you can buy this thing that is, you know, about the size of your desk and print a spoon or something. Well, that has gone very industrial in the last decade. And so during the pandemic, it just took off because essentially what it allows you to do is spray paint a part right where you are. So suddenly, if you've got an auto part that is in a Ukrainian supply chain, doesn't matter. You can spray paint them wherever you are. Um, and, and it's growing for scale, both in terms of the number that you can do and how quickly you can do them, but how complex of a piece of machinery or, or an object you can create. So one of the really cool things I got to see was in Austin, houses being 3D printed. There's a company down there that they actually started as a business to make quick shelters that human aid folks could put up if they were in a disaster zone, just like 3D print, you know, a, a shelter to live and work in. They turned that into a business to create houses, and they're really cool. They're kind of like mid-century modern, $250,000 like starter homes that you'd want to live in. So when we talk about shifting our economy away from efficiency to resiliency, how will that big change impact consumers and workers? 
this is about a transition from asset-led growth, from outsourcing, from downsizing to more income-led growth. It's a, it's a shift from consumption to savings, from, um, from just consuming to producing as well as consuming. So I believe incomes will ultimately rise uh, relative to assets. And I think that you'll have a more balanced economy, kind of a little bit more Germanic style economy where it's not all about, oh my God, you got to get on the housing ladder and then hope you can flip your house for you know 50% up in five years. Hey, maybe you'll actually have a decent paying job because there's innovation and industries that are growing in many parts of the country, not just a software and banking industry on either coast. The other way to sell it, though, is more, I guess, of a values-based framing, which you hear, funny enough, amongst some thoughtful conservatives, but also amongst kind of younger progressive millennials who are sort of questioning, do I really want more cheap stuff? You know, you see the the backlash against fast fashion, for example. You know, they they have they have connected that with climate change and with garments that take 200 years to degrade, if at all. And they think about that, I think, in ways that my generation, frankly, doesn't and didn't, in real tangible ways of like, wow, am I going to be on a planet that is going to be able to sustain me in you know 50, 100 years? I I think that those two parts of this are starting to connect. And I think the pendulum of the old way is tapped out, right? Cheap money is over. Cheap labor from China is largely over. Cheap energy from Russia is definitely over. So, you know, the pendulum is going to shift. Rana Faruhar. And coming up next, before our conversation, a quick recommendation. Jim, it's your turn. What do you have for us today? You know, Richard, I'm usually recommending these sort of heady books about policy or podcasts about big ideas. And I had a long drive recently, and I just didn't want to listen to podcasts about economics and industry. And You mean podcasts like ours? You want to? (laughs) Yeah, basically. It's too much like work. So I lined up a number of entertainment podcasts, and one that I really like is Fly on the Wall with Dana Carvey and David Spade, both, of course, Saturday Night Live yeah. of Saturday yeah. Night Live. Yeah. Uh, Carvey was part of the late 80s, early 90s era. David Spade was was on Saturday Night Live in the 90s. But it's really fun. And they, these guys really like each other. And they're constantly imitating other comedians or Lorne Michaels. So if, if for somebody like me who's kind of grown up with this stuff, it's a real nice diversion from a lot of the more serious stuff that I normally listen to. And kind of sad and kind of true, Jim, we have to face up to the fact that most of our cultural references are from the 80s and 90s. It's amazing. You know, <laughs> I, I actually, on different podcasts I listened to recently, it's about how much of the music we listen to is from previous eras. And it's a little sad, actually. When I was a kid in the 60s, I was always on at my parents and their generation for listening to music from the 40s. That stuff was only 20 years old um, <laughs> before the rock and roll era. And now, as you say, we're listening to some stuff that's pretty old. Next, our conversation about the interview we just did with uh, Rana Faruhar.
uh, Jim. Uh, she's a liberal economist. Some of her solutions are definitely involve uh, more government and, and uh, a challenge to what she calls the neoliberal order. But still, uh, she has some ideas, especially around innovation, that I think you'll find attractive. Am I right? Yeah. Well, I think her diagnosis of the problem is very good. I think that even conservative economists recognize that there have been some some really serious downsides to to the type of globalization we've had. Everyone overestimated the notion that China would go from economic liberalization to political liberalization. In fact, in a way, the opposite happened. As I suggested at a couple points in the interview, I'm leery about the aggressive use of the government to try to fix some of these problems because the odds are the government will make them worse. So I say, be careful about the idea that, that, that our policy leaders in government always know what's best for us. In, in, in many times, they will wind up enacting a policy that does much more harm in the long term. I think you overstate your case. I don't think that um, I would certainly not, and I'm pretty sure Rana would, would not argue that we assume that government policymakers are always right. Um, I just feel, and this is where you and I have a fundamental disagreement on the economy, I don't assume that the government's always wrong. I think that there's a lot of waste, a lot of problems with with some aspects of our free market, and there are problems with government as well. So I'm more of an agnostic. I don't assume that all government solutions are are useless or that the government all the government money that's spent uh, goes on waste there's a tremendous amount of waste in the market uh, as perhaps there should be and so there's bound to be waste in some government programs as well right but wasteful companies go out of business and wasteful government programs live forever that's your classic libertarian argument against a, a big government programs but ron is not arguing for big intrusive government programs uh, her her arguments are much more nuanced than that, and and I don't want to misrepresent her her take. I'm I'm in favor of companies reshoring, onshoring jobs. I'm really I'm in favor of finding ways to make agriculture more local. I would say many of the solutions sometimes involve tweaking or removing certain government regulations that help exacerbate these problems. Uh, but that still requires smart legislators to look at the issues and, and, and make intelligent changes and voters maybe paying more attention to the nuances of some of these policies. Hooray! We found something we can agree on. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Uh, this show is produced by Miranda Schaefer, and it's a production of Davies Content. Uh, we make podcasts for companies and for nonprofits as well. You'll find more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.